1 John chapter 4, verses 13 through 21. It can be found on page 1,227 in the Bibles, or it will be on the screen and on the service sheets. 1 John chapter 4, starting at verse 13. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Thank you very much, Monica. That's a tough passage. There's a lot going on there. Uh, The letter of 1 John in general is both very lofty and very applied. Uh, It has lots of esoteric phrases and perhaps slightly confusing, baffling logic, uh, but also lots of wonderfully practical, applied points for us about how we live as Christians in the world. In that sense, actually, the letter of 1 John is like much of the Bible, isn't it? That it's both simple and also deep. Simple for the youngest child to appreciate the gospel, but also so deep to capture the greatest philosophers in a lifetime of study. And one of the slightly lofty phrases that we get comes at the beginning of that passage. He has given us of his spirit. Uh, At the end of verse 13. One of many synonyms, I think, for being Christians. Uh, John's talked about being Christians in many ways in his letter, walking in the light, abiding in him, abiding in love, knowing him, being in him. And likewise, the fact that we are given of his spirit is another way of saying we are those who are Christians. So the passage is going to be talking about characteristics, behaviours that we see in those who are given of the spirit, those who have something of God in them and walk in him who are Christians. As for the other side of the spectrum, the applied themes, well, we've thought about a lot of those as we preach through this letter. We've thought about the theme of assurance a few times, how we know that we know we are Christians, worldliness, spiritual deceit, habitual sin, and repeatedly care for fellow Christians, love for one another. All of those are worth much further reflection, and I encourage you to do so by... uh, accessing the sermon archive we have on the church website, listening again and meditating again on a few of the passages we've looked at in this very dense and wonderful book of 1 John. We're coming towards the end of the letter now, and as 
with the ends of many New Testament letters, the applied themes are coming thick and fast as we get towards the end. So we have three for today, uh, three themes. I wonder if you spotted them as we read through the passage. Uh, Confession of faith in verses 14 to 16. Confidence in the face of judgment in verses 17 to 19. And calm within the church in verses 20 to 21. Now you might think, we're getting towards the end of the letter. The letter itself is towards the end of the Bible. Um, I've got lots of practical questions for how I live my life. And I'm wondering when they're going to come up. When are they going to be addressed? I've got questions about which school to send children to. How to protect family assets from care fees in the future. How to grow the perfect lawn. Uh, That last one is uh, close to my heart with uh, the croquet concern. Uh, We all come to God's word with questions on our hearts and practical questions about how we live. The Holy Spirit knows those questions. In fact, he knows the questions we have better than we ourselves know them. And thankfully, he has inspired a word that is sufficient to equip us for every good work. So don't worry too much if your concerns that you think matter to you are not coming up in 1 John as we get towards the end of the letter. The matters that do come up are actually the ones we need to hear about. So let's reflect then on these three behaviours uh, in this bit of the letter and think about how they do impact on us. So firstly, Christians do confess the faith. Verses 14 to 16. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the saviour of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. Do you notice the transition in those verses from what we do in verse 14 to what anyone does in verse 15, then back to what we do in verse 16 and ending with what whoever does in the end of verse 16. Uh, The we there talking about John, we, the royal we, and the apostles, uh, the we who have seen the Lord Jesus, who walked with him for three years. As he says in verse 14, we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. That's proposition one. That's what we've seen. That's what we have testified to, we've acknowledged. Then proposition two, verse 15. If anyone universalized, if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, then God lives in them and they in God. So conclusion, verse 16. And so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. As in, because we testify and because those who testify are Christians, that's uh, God lives in them and they live in God. Therefore, we know, because we do testify, that we have the love of God in us. And then likewise, the universalized conclusion, whoever lives in love lives in God. Whoever likewise testifies, whoever likewise is a Christian, knows God. God lives in them. But you might think, well, it doesn't exactly say that. It says whoever lives in love lives in God, not whoever testifies to Jesus lives in God. Why has John changed the phrase at the end of this little section? Why is he doing that? Is he trying to confuse us, 
throwing in these abstract phrases about living in love, um, having talked about more uh, concrete and definable ideas about testifying to Jesus. Well, no, I don't think he's trying to confuse us. Uh, He is setting up a parallelism in his terms. Did you notice that in verse 15 and verse 16, uh, both come to the same conclusion. So verse 15, if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, confessional activity, God lives in them and they in God, mutual indwelling. Likewise, verse 16, second half, whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. Again, mutual indwelling. Both the activity of acknowledging that Jesus is the Son of God and living in love. I'd suggest that what John is doing there is he's moving from the more specific, acknowledging that Jesus is the Son of God, to the more generic, living in love, in his use of language. He's characterizing the approach he's commending of testifying to Jesus being the Son as, quote, living in love. There's a specific meaning to that characterization, living in love, which has already been given in the previous verse, confessing Jesus is the Son of God. I hope you're with me. Uh, I'm sorry to do this kind of quite forensic analysis of these verses, but it really does matter here because of the extent to which these verses can get misused out of context. If we just have verse 16 on its own, we lose the definition of what love and living in love and all of that actually means, which has been given by the context around it, especially verse 15, um, about how we have God living in us and how we live in him, i.e. testifying, acknowledging that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, if you're wondering, maybe, why did John go for that characterization? Why did he characterize a life of confessing Jesus as living in love? He could have said confessing Jesus is about living in hope, or living in trust, or living in abundance. But he went for living in love. I wonder if the key is the intervening phrase, those three words we've got printed at the beginning of line five of the uh, printouts in the middle of verse 16. God is love. Not love is God, not a sort of deification of any romantic impulse, but God is love. In other words, the all-knowing, omniscient, omnipresent, almighty, living God can in some sense be summarized as, above all, exhibiting love, as being love. That's the love which the end of the verse is then talking about. Living in love is about living peaceably in the one who is love faithfully under his rule and conscientiously, as we've said, confessing his name and his activity in the world in sending his son. As with last week's uh, discussion about the preceding bit of verse 4, so the practical behaviours, including confession that we're thinking about this week, are both indicative of what Christian life is like, but also imperative about saying what Christian life should be like. So yes, we do acknowledge, we do confess that Jesus is the Son of God because we are Christians. That's something that Christians do. But it's also something that they should do. It's an encouragement and an exhortation to us to live a confessional life. 
We do make confession corporately, um, as we have done already in this service. We said the Nicene Creed together. We do that week by week. Sometimes we might feel that saying something like the creed becomes a bit repetitive and dry. We have a feeling of kind of just droning it out week by week if we say the same words. Well, this verse, verse 15, is a great encouragement and challenge to us not to have that attitude when saying the creed, rather to remember that we're evidencing that God is living in us. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. I wonder if we think about that when we're saying the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed. Do we think we're remembering and acknowledging and evidencing the facts that God, the living God, is in us. He's that close to us and we live in him. That's wonderful, exciting reality. And it animates us as we recite and say together and confess together our faith. Obviously, the Apostle John is talking about much more than just that corporate once a week in a church service, confession of faith, uh, testifying the Father has sent his Son, acknowledging that Jesus is the Son of God, is about the whole of life. Uh, that's, I'm just talking about one instance there on a Sunday. So whenever we're known as Christians, that's a wonderful testimony to Christ. Whenever and wherever we behave as Christians, that's a testimony to him living in us and us in him. And wherever we give a, a reason for the hope that we have, That is a true living in love, verse 16. Uh, Given the the specific confessional character of living in love, as we see in that parallelism, I do think it's a shame that it gets taken out of context, uh, the idea of living in love. It was yanked out of context uh, to some extent uh, three years ago by this uh, living in love and faith project which we had a look at in church a couple of years ago as a Church of England uh, look at issues of marriage and relationships. The addition of and faith onto that phrase living in love actually served, funnily enough, to entrench the misunderstanding of love. So as we've seen in, in 1 John, in context, living in love, verse 16, is about living in faith. It's about a life of confessing, Jesus is acknowledging him to be the one sent by God. Whereas, by contrast, in LLF, living in love and faith, living in love is simply a domestic partnership, which may or may not correlate to Christian marriage. With the and faith tagged onto the end, there's obviously an attempt to legitimise any such arrangements with more or less success. Now, as a disclaimer, I'm not just randomly bashing LLF by choice. We are working systematically through the book of 1 John, and that phrase that was taken as the title for that project does come up this week in the passage. So it's a fairly obvious and important link to make and to comment on. So Christians confess the faith. That's the the point of those opening verses. What about that second behavior I mentioned? Christians have confidence to face God's judgments, we see from verse 17. Verse 17, this is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Well, 
LLF and the fear of eternal judgment in one sermon. Wow, what is he thinking, you might be thinking to yourself. Well, well, I'd say back to you, what was John thinking, giving us all these big ideas in just one little bit of his letter? Certainly, one thing that John was thinking was that the idea of the day of judgment is a given. You see how that came up in verse 17. We will have confidence on the day of judgment. He's just referring to it in passing almost, as though kind of this is a given which I'm sure all of you are very familiar with, not something I need to go into in depth, not a concept I need to go out of my way to defend. And he was right in having that position, because this is a big biblical concept. Uh, The day of judgment as an idea shouldn't strike us as, oh, this is a very niche thing on the edge of Christianity. Uh, This is a core thing that comes up throughout the Bible. Um, Just by way of illustration, give us a couple of Bible verses Uh, to remind us of that. So Isaiah 66, verse 16, with fire and with his sword, the Lord will execute judgment on all people, and many will be those slain by the Lord. Those who consecrate and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following one who is among those who eat the flesh of pigs, rats, and other unclean things, they will meet their ends together with the one they follow. All these verses from the book of Malachi, chapter 4, surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. That day is coming. That's a fearful thing for the world. Uh, as fearful, or much more fearful, in fact, than the prospect of the courts for the criminal in the police van, um, heading off to the old Bailey and seeing the glinting of Lady Justice in the sunlight as he goes there, knowing what he's done wrong and knowing what's coming in court. But for Christians, for us, there is good news because fear has been taken away. That fear the criminal fears as he goes to judgment, that fear of the impending day, of God's justice is taken away in Jesus. Good news. Replaced, as we see in verse 17, by confidence. We will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like Jesus. Another synonym for being a Christian, in this world we are like Jesus. Christians are made like Jesus by the Holy Spirit. He has imputed and given, imparted Jesus' righteousness to us, making us like him. The Father looks at us and sees Jesus. We're certainly still works in progress. Sin is being worked out of our lives by the Holy Spirit sanctifying, but we still do wrong in the meantime. But although sanctification is ongoing, justification is complete. The Lord sees us as Jesus. And therefore, we have confidence in the face of his judgment. The opposite of confidence, though, is fear. Uh, Once anybody is aware of the reality uh, from the word of the day of judgment, we either face it with confidence or fear, depending on where we stand with Jesus. So verse 18 There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. 
again, a, a classic case of a verse that can and sadly is taken out of context. Evidently, the passage is not about a general fear of scary things in the world. It's about the specific fear, as we've seen from the previous verse, of the day of judgment. That's the fear it's talking about. Equally, it's not talking about undefined love driving out fear, just being nice to each other, driving away fearful things in the world, but about the specific love of faith in Christ, love for God that we have. Those with such faith do not fear God's judgment. Instead, love drives out that fear. That love drives out that fear. Now, often, verse 18 is ripped out of context. And the idea that perfect love drives out fear is just taken on its own. But, thankfully, it means much more than that. Verse 18 is about a real deep love and the driving out of fear. It's about having peace with God, not apprehension of our final fate. We know that we will be with the Lord forever and nothing can separate us from him. That sort of confidence uh, isn't just something for the far future, not just something for when we die and when we go to be with him. That confidence has an immediate temporal impact as well. So we can go about life with a new calm, a new purpose, a new contentment through having got rid of that fear of God's judgment. And that's better than any false peace of just being nice to one another. So we've seen a couple of behaviours already. Confession of the Lord Jesus, confidence in the face of judgment. Uh, Lastly, John talks about calm for Christians within the church. A slight variation, really, on last week's theme of loving one another within the church. Verse 20. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister, whom they have seen, cannot love God, whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Reminiscent a little bit of chapter one, isn't it? With those, whoever says this but does that is acting inconsistently. This is about consistent Christian behavior. It's inconsistent for Christians to hate fellow believers. Now, this isn't a call for superhumanity. It's not saying we shouldn't find people difficult. We shouldn't sometimes find them a little bit irksome. As we've said already, we're works in progress. We don't do things perfectly. We do things that are wrong. We do wind each other up sometimes. That's inevitable. What it is saying is that we shouldn't let that get under our skin and settle into a hatred for fellow Christians. We should always think about people and treat them instead with love, even in difficult cases. Now, I wonder if a bigger problem for us than hating brothers and sisters is indifference towards them, simply just not having the energy to fulsomely love. Well, the, perhaps an answer to that is given by an encouragement is given in the verse about the physicality of the church family. Look at the second half of verse 20 again. Whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. Seeing one another 
helps us to avoid both hatred but also indifference. It's hard to hate somebody who you see on a regular basis. I wonder if this is part of why it's good to meet together in person where possible uh, as a church family on a Sunday and midweek. Equally, it's hard to hate or to be indifferent to somebody who you do see and interact with physically on a regular basis. And as we love rather than hate, as we love rather than show indifference, again, we evidence the fact that he lives in us and we live in him. As we do by confessing our faith in Christ, as we do by having confidence in the face of judgment. Let's stop there, pray and give thanks. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again that you first loved us. You are love. And you showed your love to us in sending us your Son while we were still far off. Thank you for drawing us to him, bringing us in him so that we do have confidence in the relation to your judgment, that we do confess his name that we do have this wonderful new family to be part of, which we're called to love and care for. Help us, Heavenly Father, to show to the world these evidences of our faith, and so abide in him and abide in love. Amen.